All right, well, thank you. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 47. I say it almost every week, but I so appreciate our, our worship team, our praise team, those who lead us in worship each and every week. A lot of work goes into that, and uh, we're so grateful for all that are involved. And uh, so uh, we want to turn our attention to God's Word. And so we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 47. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been working through a short series that we've called Summer in the Psalms. And today we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 47. Well, hopefully you are there. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that the title that precedes this psalm tells us both the authors and the audience. Okay, so look above the psalm. It says, for the chief musician, some of your Bibles may say for the choir director, and then it will say a psalm of the sons of Korah. Well, some believe that the chief musician is the Lord God himself, and yet others would suggest that this is a reference to a specific leader of choirs or uh, musicians in David's time, such as Heman, the singer, or Asaph. We learn about them in First Chronicles. We're really not exactly sure about that. So we don't know who the chief musician is, but we do know a little bit about Korah from Exodus chapter 6, verses 16 through 24, which tells us that Korah was a descendant of Levi, which made him and the sons of Korah Levites. And so with that, most assume that the specific sons of Korah who are addressed here and also in the titles of 10 other Psalms were Levitical singers in the tabernacle and and temple ceremonies. But with that said, uh, they may have just been performers of the psalm rather than the authors of it. So again, we're we're just not sure about that. But what we do know, (laughs) what we do know is that this is a wonderful celebratory psalm with prophetic undertones. It celebrates a, a great king, And that's what we want to do today. We we want to set aside the cares of this life. We want to set aside all of the things that we see in the media, all of the, the negative things that seem to overwhelm the news cycle. And we just want to concentrate our attention and celebrate our God. Can we do that today? Can we just set aside everything else? Can we just come together as God's people and celebrate our God? That's what we want to do today. That's what this psalm is going to help us do today. It's going to help us to celebrate our God, the great and mighty King. We love to celebrate things, don't we? Uh, We enjoy getting together and, and celebrating things, special occasions, accomplishments, birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. You could go on and on and on with the list. You know, there's celebration in heaven. We learn in the Scriptures that there's a, celebra- a celebration when one sinner repents. Can you imagine the gospel going forth each and every day all throughout the world? Heaven is a place of celebration because there are people that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ uh, all day long, all week long, all month long, all year long. And so heaven is a place of celebration I don't want us to lose track of the fact that as Christians, as those whom God has saved 
from our sin, giving us Christ to come and to die in our place, to take the wrath of God upon himself, to die in our place, to be the perfect substitute and sacrifice that God would accept for our sin. And by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can have this eternal salvation. We need to celebrate that more. I think sometimes in the back of our minds, we are celebrators. You know, we know that God has done amazing things for us, right? We know that he sent Christ. We know all of these things. We celebrate God's word, and yet we get so mired in the clay of life that we forget sometimes that our life should be one big celebration of what God has done for us through Christ. And so this must start with us celebrating God, who is the great and mighty king. And so as I read Psalm 47 this morning, you're going to notice a number of references to God as king, and that's important as we look at this psalm today. So follow along if you would as I read Psalm 47, verse 1, O clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with the voice of joy, for the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. And you remember, Selah means rest. It's a, it's, a, it's a time for us to reflect upon what we just read, Selah. Verse 5, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our God, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He, he, God, the king, is highly exalted. One of the highlights of my tenure when I was working for the state of Illinois was I got the opportunity to meet the president. Way back in 1992, when George Herbert Walker Bush was running for a second term, uh, I was the liaison for the Secret Service who uh, were preparing for his arrival. And so I was the one that helped them and gave them all of the things that they needed for his arrival. And so as sort of as a thank you for that, the Secret Service gave me this special privilege of personally meeting and talking with the president. And I'll never forget it. I look back on that encounter with fondness, but when I think about it, it absolutely pales in comparison to when I met the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Way back in the latter part of the 1970s, God saved me from the due penalty of my sin. And God, who is the king of the universe, was the only one who could do that. He's the only one that could do it. And somewhere around 40 times in the Old Testament is God referred to as king, which means that God is the absolute sovereign ruler of all things, the potentate and majesty on high. So today, as we examine this great celebratory psalm, we're going to find four responses to the king. Four res- I want us to dial in today, okay? I want us to dial in. I want us to consider the text. We do that each and every week. But I want us to do that today in a celebratory fashion. 
So whatever we need to do with our hearts right now, whatever we need to do, if we need to confess sin to the Lord, if we need to just put aside the cares and concerns of life, whatever it is, the distractions that we brought with us today, whatever it is, let's just clear it. And let's just concentrate on God. And so this is what this psalm is all about. Psalm 47 is all about our response to the king. To the king. And the first one we find here in verse 1, verses 5 through 7, the first response to the king is that he is to be praised. He is to be praised. Verse 1 O clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the voice of joy. Verse 7, God has ascended with the shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And, and that's familiar language to us, by the way, in a sense, right? Because we remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7, right, that the Lord will descend from heaven with the shout, right? And so here he says that the Lord uh, will ascend with a shout, the sound of a trumpet, celebratory. Sing praises to God, verse 6. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Is he trying to get our attention? For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful song. So should this even be a thing? Of course, kings should be praised and honored because of their position, right? First Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. But we're not just speaking here of a fallible human king. This is the supreme, infallible king of kings. If Scripture implores us to honor and praise human kings, think of the praise that is due to the king of kings. And here we find three expressions of praise. And the first expression is through the clapping of hands. Notice verse 1 again. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. And so not to be missed here is that the king is worthy of praise from all peoples. All peoples, right? He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of all people. And because of that and that alone, he is worthy of praise. I like what James Montgomery Boyce said about this. He said, Psalm 47 follows quite naturally after Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is focused on the security of God's people, noting how God had delivered them from one of their great enemies. It challenged the nations to observe that deliverance and stand in awe before God. Now, in Psalm 47, God says to those same people, Rejoice and be happy The king of Israel is also the king of all the earth. We know the king. We know the king. I met the president for like three minutes. I know the king. You know the king. So the king is worthy of praise from all peoples. And, and one of the ways that that praise is expressed, the psalmist says, is through the clapping of hands. So clapping is a physical expression of an inward joy or approval, right? Clapping has always been a means of acknowledgement or an expression of satisfaction. Clapping, by the way, I think, is the universal language. It's often spontaneous, 
Yesterday, we had a celebration of one of our ladies, Carol Kirkwood, who uh, turned a, a magical number. Uh, I won't say what it is. She was surprised. There was a bunch of us in the fellowship hall waiting to, to surprise her and to celebrate with her. As soon as she walked in, what happened? Everyone broke out in applause. Everyone started clapping. It's the universal language. It, it's, it's spontaneous in many ways. Like many of you, I grew up in a conservative church being taught that the church is to do everything decently and in order, right? That was the excuse for no emotion in the church. So clapping was taboo in the church. Even after someone would sing a glorious song that would bring us into focus of who our God is or who Christ is, we couldn't clap. The best we could do was say amen, right? Clapping was taboo in the church. And some of you may be thinking, uh-oh, what is Pastor Dave about to say? Is he going to endorse clapping in the church? Well, I'm certainly not going to denounce it. If you want to clap, clap. As long as it's an expression of praise. If you get a little wild, we'll come and talk to you. But I feel like we've gone the other way with our expressions of praise, right? Well, our God, where our praise of God ultimately comes from the heart, it's okay. It's okay to have an outward expression of our inward reality. So clap away if you'd like. So the first expression of praise is through the clapping of hands, the psalmist says. The second expression of praise is through shouts of joy. Uh Uh-oh. Shouts of joy. Look at the second part of verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with voices of joy. As I mentioned, I grew up in a church that loved to say amen when the pastor shared a rich truth. Sometimes those amens were shouts of joy, expressions of praise. And I missed that a little bit. A year or two ago, I went back to the church that I grew up in, and I preached. And there were a lot of amens. There were a lot of amens agreeing with me about the truths of God that I was preaching. And so the first expression of praise is through the clapping of hands. The second expression of praise is through shouts of joy. And now third, the third expression of praise is through singing. Again, it's repetitive, but look at verse 5 again. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. The third expression of praise that the psalmist shares with us is through singing. And and we know that the Bible speaks much to the subject of music, right? Because singing has always been a primary way that God's people worship and praise him. I've had people say to me over the years, and and I really feel like they're missing out. I've had people say to me over the years that I'm just not a good singer, so I don't sing in church. 
And I say to them, you know, God doesn't really care if we have a good voice. I hear all the time, by the way, people will say, hey, you know what? I sit, I sit in front of so-and-so in church. They're a really good singer. They're a really good singer. They help me want to sing out. But let me just encourage you, as an expression of our praise to God, sing out. Sing out. It doesn't matter if you're off key. I've heard about you too. <laughs> I just heard about you the other day. It's okay. Hey, you know what? I get to sit in the front row and nobody gets to hear me. I just sing out. It's an expression of my praise to God. And I, I, I concentrate on the words. You know, I love the melody and I love the music. I'm a, I'm a musical person. I love music. I'm not very good at it. Personally, I'm not talented or gifted at it. I sing okay, but I love it. I love to sing. I love to, to express my praise to God. And I love to do it with other people. It would be brutal if I did it by myself because, mm. but with all of us singing and then the, the girls singing, beautiful voices, how do they do it? I was thinking about music this past week. I love music. I love singing. I love it all, but I'm not good at it. And I am amazed at how they can sound so good. How those four instruments can blend together and then they can sing so beautifully. And then all of us can join together with our voices to praise the Lord. Sing out. Sing out. Let's just take the roof off of this place when we sing praises to the Lord. You know, for the most part, the Psalms served as the songbook for the Jews. Sometimes the songs were sang a cappella. Other times they were sung with instrumentation. In the Bible, there is a great diversity of musical instruments that are mentioned, which helps us to understand that God doesn't prefer or endorse any one instrument over another. In other words, the piano and the organ, while great instruments, they're not considered by God to be more glorified than guitars or drums or horns or tambourines. God can be praised through the use of any instrument. But here the psalmist is speaking directly about singing. He says, sing praises to God. Sing praises to our King. As we fast forward to the New Testament and the age of the church, we, we find the Apostle Paul addressing the importance of singing to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, Paul speaking directly to the church at Ephesus. He says in verse 19 of chapter 5, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. And I'm thankful for that because the melody comes from our hearts and not necessarily from our voices because, you know. Colossians 3.16, Paul sharing something very similar. He shares to the church at Colossae, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We spent a lot of time last week on the heart, right? In both of those passages, when Paul addresses singing to the Lord, there's a mention of the heart, 
And in both of those passages in the New Testament era here, we find that there's a great diversity of the types of songs that we can use to praise God. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And folks have tried to parse the difference between these three types of songs. I've seen all kinds of different explanations as to what a psalm is, what a hymn is, what a spiritual song is. But, but I think Paul's greater point is that our singing is praiseworthy to God, and it is also instructive to the believer. But not to be missed in our singing of praises to the king is that it is to be from the heart. You see, God is concerned about the heart. He's concerned about the heart. Both of these passages that are singing, uh, shares that are singing is to be from the heart. And so churches are not to divide over the style of music or the type of instrumentation used, but we are to unite behind the message that is being sung from our hearts. And so when we sing, we need to tune in to what we're singing. There have been times when I have been in a conference with other people, sometimes thousands and thousands of people. This won't surprise you, but I would be singing a song that I've never heard before. And they may have played it on the front end so that we'd get the melody and all that kind of thing. So uh, I may be singing the song, and there may be a line in the song that I don't necessarily agree with theologically. So I'm looking ahead, right? We put the words up on the screen so we can look ahead. And so there may be a line in the song that I don't necessarily agree with theologically. You know what? I don't sing that line. I just skip it. That's weird. That's radical. Why do you do that? Well, I think it's important that we sing what we believe, that we sing truth to God. And so there has been a time or two where I have not sang a certain line of a song because I didn't believe that that to be true. I didn't believe that that is accurate biblically. But when we sing, don't just get into the, the emotion of it, where we're enjoying singing with the people of God. Yes, that's good. But we're singing specific things to God. And so all of our songs are vertical in nature. So we're singing praises to God because He is worthy of our praise. So the purpose of music has always been for us to unite behind the message to praise God and to edify and instruct the saints. So first, the king is to be praised. Now second, we see here that he is to be feared. Look at verse 2. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So first we notice here that the Lord's kingship is not restricted to a certain area. Okay, there, there are no geographical boundaries to his kingship. He, he's the king of all the earth. The, the pagan gods of the ancient world like Baal and Moloch and Ashtoreth and so on and so forth, they, they were imagined to be territorial gods. Their authority, so-called authority, was limited to a nation or a region but not our God, the one true living God. He has no territorial boundaries. I'll be teaching and preaching at a conference out of Pastor Frank's church in New Mexico next month, and I'd appreciate your prayers for that. 
I'm not sure that I've ever been to New Mexico. I might have been through part of it at one time, but I've never been there to enjoy it. But Kathy and I are, 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 are going to be out there. And when we arrive, we can rest assured that God is the king there too. He's the king in New Mexico, just like he's the king in Pennsylvania. He is the great king over all the earth. And that should give us comfort. There's no one higher than God. God is the highest. He's the pinnacle of, of, of deity. He is the only true deity, the one that reigns over the entire earth. And as king, the psalmist says, he is to be feared. He's to be feared, which means that he's to be revered and respected. But I'm not so sure that there shouldn't be some sort of godly trepidation associated with our relationship with God. Not just respect and reverence, but a holy fear. I grew up with a healthy fear of my dad. And I didn't do a whole lot of things because I was afraid that if I did, there would be severe repercussions if I did them. You see, part of having a reverence or fear of God includes not wanting to disappoint God and not wanting to endure the ramifications that may come our way if we do. Solomon was spoken of in Scripture as the man that is the most wise man that God created. God gave him a special wisdom, right? And so at the end of his life, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, he, 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 he's, he's pontificating, he's talking about all the things that he's learned. And, and Solomon, honestly, uh, not a great example of putting w- uh, wisdom into practice. I mean, he tried all kinds of things to find contentment with, uh, in his life, and, and he chose all kinds of things until he finally figured it out. And sometimes we are that way, aren't we? Sometimes it takes us a long time to figure things out. So at the end of his life, he says this, the conclusion when everything has been heard is to fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person, not just Solomon, but it applies to every person. Fear God and keep his commandments. I grew up with folks that used the description about our family that our family was a God-fearing family. And our family wasn't perfect by any stretch at all. But, but our neighbors on Watch Avenue in Springfield, Illinois, knew that our family feared God. It showed in how our, pa- our parents led us, our priorities as a family, how we acted, how we spoke, how we loved, how we served others. Do you, do you fear God? Do you fear God? Not just on Sundays, when we come to gather together here at Grace Life Church to sing praises to God and listen to His Word, but do we fear Him each and every day of our lives? Because to me, that's one of the things that should guide us in our life. We live in the fear of God. We respect God, and we're in awe of God, so that affects how we live, right? And we don't want to disappoint Him, I think a little bit of trepidation is a good thing. A little holy fear is a good thing. I used to 
just be beside myself when I would disappoint my mom and dad, when I would maybe disobey or do something that I knew that didn't uh, sit well with them. It really ate at me. It really did. But in a, in a much lesser sense than it does now when I disappoint God. And I do at times. I think we all disappoint God at times. But our heartbeat should be that we want to fear God. We want to operate under the auspices of who God is. See, this is a celebratory psalm. We want to celebrate who God is, right? And we celebrate Him best when we're living for Him, right? We can sing praises to Him, and He accepts that, and He receives that, but He's concerned about our hearts. And out of our hearts flow our words, and out of our hearts flow our actions. And so they're all tied together. So he is to be praised. He is to be feared. And now third, he is to be trusted. He's to be trusted. Look at verse 3. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. People are sometimes hard to trust. But God should be easy for us to trust. People may let us down, but God will never let us down. People may leave us or forsake us, but God will never leave us nor forsake us. As we considered last week, we can trust him with all that is within us. We can cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Notice here that he gives two specific reasons why we can trust him. First, he says, he's to be trusted because he subdues. Look at verse 3. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. To subdue means to bring under control. God has always subdued people in the sense that he is in sovereign control of all things. But there's an aspect here that, that is pointing forward to when Christ will return to rule and reign over all people and all nations. And upon his return, Israel, referred to here as us and our, in the text, will take its rightful place. Second, he can be trusted because he chooses. Look at verse 4. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. You know, one of the great hallmarks of our belief system in God is that he is sovereign, right? He's sovereign. He's in control of all things, which means that he makes choices. God makes choices. He even chooses here our future inheritance, right? God's a chooser. God chose Israel out of all the nations on the face of the earth. He chose Israel to be his people, right? And he chooses certain sinful people for salvation. This is clear all throughout Scripture. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. We don't need to run from the fact that God chooses. He's God. 
He can do whatever he wants. Within his sovereign plan, he chooses. And he did it before the foundation of the world. You know what the word choose means here in Ephesians 1.4? It means to choose. I don't know what else to tell you. It means to select. God sovereignly chooses or selects to save whomever he wishes, whenever he wishes. And the word predestined here means predetermined. And so before the foundation of the world, God predetermined those whom he'll save. There's a lot more to this here in Psalm 47 than meets the eye. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. First Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. So he mentions about this future inheritance, right? Well, Peter talks all about this here in the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this passage of Scripture. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the way, Peter messed up a lot, right? Hey, he... he Denied Christ three times in a row. In a row. After saying he would never do it. Peter was an apostle of Christ. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are what? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Boy, there's so much here. There's so much here. One thing I want to point out to you here in verse 2, the word foreknowledge does not mean here that God looked out into the future and saw who was going to trust in him. It's the same root word as is in verse 20 of the same chapter in reference to Christ. It does not mean that God reacted to people who he knew were going to choose him. This is not passive here. This is active. God caused us to be saved. God chose us in him. And so that is important for our, for our understanding. But this inheritance in verse 4 It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And and honestly, I've I've thought this for most of my adult life. I can get through just about anything. I can get through just, I have an inheritance in heaven waiting for me. Undeserved. I get it. Totally undeserved. But it's reserved. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you're a Christian, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're going to one day receive an inheritance that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Some of you have received earthly inheritances. Some of you have gotten a lot of money from your relatives. Your parents, perhaps. 
It pales in comparison to the inheritance that awaits us. It's reserved. Our names are already on the list. Already on the list. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Our names were put in the Lamb's Book of Life before we were even on the earth. But what I love about this is notice in verse 5 that this inheritance that's reserved for us, it's, it's, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's not going to fade away. It's reserved there for us in heaven. But notice verse 5. It's protected by the power of God. Who can whip God? Who can whip God? When I was in elementary school, there was a bully in our, in our school. He was huge. There's no way that kid was 10 years old. There is no way on earth that kid was 10 years. He's bigger than the teachers. But he was a bully. And everybody was afraid of him. Except one little kid who punched him right in the nose, right in the lunchroom. I mean, knocked him down. God is the protector the power of God. Nobody can whip God. Nobody can whip God. So he protects this inheritance that we have by his power. He is the king of all the earth, the king of all the peoples. He's the one who designed salvation before we ever existed, before Adam and Eve ever existed. He had a plan of redemption that he would purchase us from the slave market of sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that man would sin. It wasn't a surprise when he put Adam and Eve on the earth. He knew that they would sin. But he had it all figured out. He had it all worked out. And so everyone from the time of Adam until now who has trusted in Christ as their Savior, they have this inheritance. It's protected. It's fully protected by God. Nobody can whip our God. Nobody can take that inheritance away from us. So God not only subdues, but he chooses. You notice the psalmist mentions Jacob here, right? You see that in the text back in Psalm 47? Well, you don't need to turn there, but let me read to you Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 16, because Paul addresses the choosing of Jacob directly. You remember the passage. Paul says, for, for though the twins were not yet born, he's talking about Jacob and Esau. You know that Esau, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. The Israelites were descendants of Jacob. For though the twins were not yet born, it had not yet done anything good or bad. So this is before they were even born. So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works that Grady prayed about this morning, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And that could easily be inserted there, that Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have not chosen. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice with God? Far from it. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I show compassion. So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. You see, God chooses. It's his prerogative as God, as the sovereign of the universe. We don't always know why God chooses whom or what he chooses. And of course, he owes us no explanation. But in this case, we know that God chose Jacob because it was through the line of Jacob that Jesus would come forth. So he's to be praised. He's to be feared. He's to be trusted. And now forth, he is to be exalted. He's to be exalted. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. And we know that God made the covenant with Abraham. We refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant. The three tenets of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He, singularly, he is highly exalted. And so when we think of this idea of exaltation, we think of elevation, right? We think of something that's high, lifted high. They're elevated to the the rightful place of honor. And so here in verses 8 and 9, we find three ways that the psalmist says that his exaltation is exhibited. And these three ways show us exactly why he is to be exalted among those whom he has created. First, we find at the first part of verse 8 that his exaltation is exhibited by his rule over the nations. God reigns over the nations. They're subject to him. He places human kings and rulers in places of authority, but he is the ultimate ruler of the nations. That gives me great solace, by the way. Man, I'm looking around. I'm reading on Ukraine and Russia, and I'm reading on all these other countries. I'm, I'm reading about our own country and where we're heading and all that kind of thing. It gives me comfort to know that God is the ruler of the nations. None of this stuff is happening outside of his control. God's got it. He's the ruler over the nations. Second, his exaltation is exhibited by his holiness. Look at verse uh, 8. God sits on his holy throne. God sits on his holy. God's throne is holy because he is holy. He's exalted above all else because all of those whom he has created are sinners, but God is perfectly holy. He's righteous and just in all that he does. Holiness carries this idea of being set apart, separate. God is separate from sin and set apart unto holiness. Holiness and sanctification are closely related. And because God is holy, he calls for us as his people to be holy as well, right? 1 Peter 1 and verse 16 says, you shall be holy because I am holy. If you want to ponder the holiness of God, it's a hard read, but I'd encourage you to read the book of Leviticus. So his exaltation is exhibited by his rule over the nations. His exaltation is exhibited by his holiness. And then third, his exaltation is exhibited by his delegation of authority. Look at verse 9. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The God of Abraham 
is king. He's in complete control of all things, but he delegates his authority to people like princes. But human kings and princes are accountable to God. That's most likely what the psalmist is saying here when he says the shields of the earth belong to God. These these men who serve as governmental shields for the protection of the people. This psalm ends appropriately by saying that he is highly exalted. If you haven't caught it yet, if you haven't caught it yet, the psalmist ends where he began, that this God, our God, is highly exalted above all gods. He rules over the nations. He rules over all people. We know the king. We know him. He's not a distant king. He's not a distant God. He's a personal God. We know him. We know him. That should make all the difference in the world. Sometimes our celebrations are planned. Sometimes they're more spontaneous in the moment. But we need to think how we can best celebrate who God is. Celebrate. Every day is a celebration of who God is. Yeah, we celebrate His resurrection on Easter. We celebrate His birth on Christmas. You know, We come every Sunday to church and we celebrate who God is. We sing praises to Him. They're all, it's all about Him. It's all about Him. So we come and we celebrate God. You know, we meet on a Sunday because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. So in a sense, every time we gather together as the saints of God on a Sunday, it's, it's a celebration of the resurrection. I think about baptism. Baptism at the root of baptism, there are two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I think of baptism as a celebration as well. In a sense, right, because it's public and there are people that gather around while we proclaim that we are a follower of Jesus Christ, at the root of baptism is the, is the idea of identification. So we're identifying as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's celebratory. The Lord's Supper, we view it, I think, a lot of times as a somber occasion in the sense that we, it, it's, a, it's a time of reflection, for sure, And it's a time for us to think about what God has done for us through Christ. But isn't that even a celebration? When we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we're celebrating who Jesus is and what he means to us. I I just think we need to turn it a little bit. I think we need to turn it just a little bit and realize how much as Christians we are to celebrate God. He is the king. We know him. We know the king. And there's a lot of people that don't. And it breaks our heart. Some of our neighbors don't know the king. Some of the people in our family, they don't know the king. People that we work with, people that we hang out with, they don't know the king. And we say to them, would you like to know the king? I can introduce you to the king. And they say, nah, not really. I'm good. You don't want to know the king? 
you don't want to know this king? Not really. Not really. Do we give up? Do we say, okay, well, all right. I know the king. I know the king. I'd love to introduce you to the king. No. We love those people enough to keep saying, just remember, if you ever want to meet the king, let me know. We'd love to tell you about the king. We know him. He is the great king. Let's celebrate him. Let's celebrate him in all that we do. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we have considered you in maybe a way that we haven't in a while, uh, as king, as the great king, as the one who is the ruler of all the nations, as the one whom has loved us enough to send your son to come and to die in our place so that we may repent of our sin and believe in him and we can have eternal life. This inheritance that you've given to us, amazing. It's reserved in heaven for us, protected by your power. We know no one can whip you. No one can take our inheritance from us. Lord, I would just pray that you would help us to be more celebratory, that we would think of the Christian life, think of you in a little bit of a different way. And each day, desire to celebrate who you are. And and, and all that goes with that, what you're doing in our lives and what you've done in our life and all the things that you have forgiven us for as we have failed you and sinned against you and and, and, and just thinking about you in a different way, celebrating who you are. Help us to do that. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.